What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. This is episode number 44. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me, as per usual, Ben Fisher. What's up, dude? Well, first of all, I'm going to make a small correction there. It's episode 45. And I will say, this isn't the uh, this isn't the problem that we were having earlier, is it? Where we couldn't figure out what the actual date of our anniversary was? <laughs> no, it is episode 45. Uh, I was reading in our notes here the actual... We update the episode title in our notes, like on the, the title of the document, but frequently forget to actually update in the <laughs> document what the episode is because we copy it from episode to episode so that was the issue there this is episode 45 okay okay we'll figure out what our anniversary date is at some point uh, probably <laughs> <laughs> i would hope so we did have some plans for that yeah maybe one or two by the way uh can they see us they can yeah. see us right well oh, wow. some of them can uh, i assume yeah. There is a listener there listening to the audio version, but we do have the video version of the episode available on YouTube, and we'll be getting into the reason for that in just a moment. Oh, uh, well, do you remember when 3D movies first started coming out? How, like, once in every 3D movie, there'd be, like, a, whoa, like, gotcha, sight gag, where, like, a, I don't know, a, a cuckoo clock would, like, explode towards the screen, and everyone would go, whoa, I I'm going to pull one of those. And uh, only the people that can see... The audio, uh, or it's the people that, are listening, people that are listening to audio won't be able to get this. You know, I actually got most letters right because my my, uh, my thing is mirrored. So those of you that are seeing the video version can actually see what, I, what I'm holding up to the screen yeah, right it's now. It's all backwards, dude. It's, oh, okay. Well, they can figure it out. Uh, to me, it looks forwards. So I thought I wasn't mirrored. Did we, did we discuss this? I thought you weren't, but I guess you are. Who knows? All right. Well, I, 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 tell you what, I, I'll work on this. We can get back in, in a little bit. How about you? Uh, how about you start on the <laughs> intro? Sure. So as mentioned, this is episode number 45. Thanks for joining us. We're excited to have you. We are going to be talking about playing with a plan today. And in fact, we've got some spicy hot, maybe hot takes. I think it's actually pretty sound, uh, but but hopefully a new twist on on playing with a plan and coming up with a plan in limited magic. Before we get into that, of course, we've got a couple of housekeeping items. First up, we have a Discord. If you haven't been in the Discord yet, that's a great place to go to chat with us uh, day in and day out. We're, we're pretty active in that, Ben and I, and we also have a great community over there who's constantly helping each other out with different uh, limited tips as well as trying to find groups to get, get pods together for drafts as well as EDH games and all sorts of different stuff like that. So definitely check out the Discord if you're interested in uh, you know communicating with us more frequently. There you go. You nailed it. He's holding up a phone that says Zach sucks on it, but he spelled no, sucks with S-U-X. Don't spoil it for the audio listeners. That's what they had to go check. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, that said, uh, on to our next piece of housekeeping, um, our Patreon. That is our number one sponsor. And of course, that means you as the listener are our number one sponsor. You can check that out at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. We've got, I think, five tiers over there with uh, the starting range at $2 up to $10 a month. And um, we have all sorts of different perks there. Stickers, access to show notes, custom deck building opportunities with, with us, 
as well as uh, access to uncut and unedited versions of the show. And we hit our first stretch goal. We are finally past the, the mark for our first stretch goal, so congrats to you, patrons. Thank you so much for your uh, your support. We really, it's it's still mind-blowing. Every time we sit down to record the show, we're like, what the heck? People listen to Literally this. Literally just today, we were like, oh my god. A year ago, Zach was texting me like, hey, you know what would be a fun idea? A podcast. I was like, yeah, I'm sure that'll work. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it uh, almost did. <laughs> and I'd say this is working. Something's going right. Yeah, but, <laughs> but thank you. Uh, Seriously, thank you so much to our patrons. Uh, we can't thank you enough. Uh, we are humbled and honored. And uh, well, let's just say uh, we got some big plans still coming up in our future. We we, we haven't even begun to peak yet. So uh. <laughs> at least I hope not. Um, uh. <laughs> that said, that goal was to uh, when we reached that goal, the plan was to to enable video versions of the podcast. So we are launching starting with this episode right here on YouTube. So you can check out the the show every week on YouTube as well as wherever you get podcasts. If you wanted to see a video version, uh, that'll be there as well. That said, let's get on to our crack a, draft, crack a draft type thing. All right. Well, this is a really special one. I've got another paper pack of Strixhaven here from my pre-release kit, which I still have yet to actually open and build with. But uh, I guess this is a special one because you can actually see me physically open it. So people that might have been, uh, I don't know, uh, deprived of opening paper cards, this will do something for you. Oh my god, I just got terrified when I saw this. Uh, I guess here's another one of those uh, visual-only things. I, 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 apparently this is secret layer advertising, but when I saw this as I was opening the pack, I thought, oh my god, I ripped the foil in half or something like that. Yeah, they, they do include those uh, little like token cards that are ads now, and uh, th- that one, the secret layer one, has the back shows the card. It looks like ripped cards on the back, so it's... Uh... Scared me. First up in our pack, we've got Blood Researcher. It's the one black green for a uh, the Menace 2-2 uh, that gains uh, counters when you gain life. I've seen this thing get up to a 10-10 before. Like, this is this is a solid beater, and Menace is just exactly what you want on something that can get that big. Yeah, totally fine. Wow. Uh, the pack that comes next, uh, or sorry, the pick that comes next is, is its best friend, Witherbloom Pledge Mage. So this is uh, three Witherbloom Witherbloom for the 5-5. Five, five. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery, you gain a life. Obviously, a great fit with the Researcher. This can stabilize boards really well. It's a 5 out of 5-5. Five, five. Uh, I'm pretty happy taking one of these within the first uh, seven to eight picks or so. Yeah, and they're flexible enough, right, with the hybrid mana cost that you aren't mm. actually committing to to Witherbloom. It's I've seen it be a little bit worse outside of Witherbloom than any of the other green and or black decks, but... Yeah, I mean, it's serviceable. Like you said, it's a 5-mana five 5-5. Five, five. It has minor upside in any of those decks and kind of decent upside in, in the Witherbloom decks. So, yeah, solid card. Yeah, it's a pretty strange Silver Quill deck that wants this, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, the one that's planning on casting a bunch of spells after turn 5. I, mean, I think Silver Quill would rather win the game by then, right? But uh, this goes pretty well in Quandrix. I've cut some other 5-drops over this from Quandrix decks before, so... Uh, if, if you need to stabilize, this thing will help you do it. Next up, we've got Letter of Acceptance. It's the artifact. It's three. Taps to add a man of any color, or you can pay two. Tap, sack, draw a card. It's fine. You'll play it in, like, Quandrix every once in a while if you really need the ramp, but I think you'd rather be getting lands onto the battlefield, especially because Quandrix cares about having eight lands. Yeah, I mean, if you could take the choice, like, almost... Unless you're splashing, like, in a really heavy way... You pretty much always would just rather have a field trip instead. I feel pretty good about those in Sealed, though. 
Uh, we're going to start having to mention this given that the Open's coming up. I can't wait. It's going to be great. Next up, Prismari Pledge Mage. Prismari Prismari for a 3-3 with Defender, and Magecraft it loses Defender can attack. Cool. It's fine. You'll play it. You won't take it first pick, though. Next up, Guiding Voice. This is one white for a sorcery. Put a woman counter on target creature and learn. Turns out uh, learning lessons is really, really good. Uh, th this one I have run main deck a handful of times. It is chaff. Absolutely. It'll it'll get cut a, a decent number of the times too, but sometimes you just play it in, in your really aggressive white decks. Yeah, I don't think I've ever really bothered to take this anywhere early at all, even when I'm in white, but uh, learn is very powerful and... Kind of like MDFCs, I think, at first, where like folks were a little low on them. Um, I don't think people have overcorrected so much on Learn just yet. It, it's a very viable, very valuable aspect to, to the format, but um, it does make all the cards that have it as a keyword quite a bit better. Mm -hmm. Next up is Arcane Subtraction. That's one of the move for an instant. Target creature gets minus four, minus four until end of turn, and Learn. Again, uh, perfectly serviceable. Putting Learn on this is just... I found it'd be so much better than if it said draw a card, right? Yeah, I mean, knowing what you're drawing is is a huge boon. Unless you happen to have a really terrible lesson plan, which is what I'm what I'm coining as the the term for lesson board. I don't know why people didn't jump on this faster. Like, lesson we really should make it stick. Let, let's force it. Lesson plan. Start saying that, people. Uh, I also think it's pretty cool as a player that loves playing with wish boards. Fae of Wishes is a, a very fun card. And people that also play the other kind of wish cards and other formats know this. But having the ability to go get the exact thing you need from the sideboard is really, really good. And you will win many games that you otherwise would not have had the ability to do. So I recommend it. Uh, here's a card that you're probably not going to take over any of these. Blood Age General. I have seen that card played way more than I expected. Hmm. And I have never seen it be like, like it's, it's a two mana two two. The tap yeah. effect is pretty much never relevant. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you'll have enough spirits. They're good in multiples. Funnily enough, if you can untap this during combat, which there's a few ways to do in the format, uh, Sparring Regiment, I believe, is my favorite way to do this because uh, it grows it too. If you can untap this thing mid-combat, you can tap it uh, and it'll uh, you can pump itself with it, which is a cute little interaction. You can give it Vigilance too in a few other ways. The, the problem with this I've found is that Red White wants this the most, but... A lot of lore hole cards are humans, especially at low drops. Uh, Star Pupil, the, the Pledge Mage. Uh, it's a little bit of an awkward tension between this and that. The spirits are, are the, they're there, but oftentimes they're a little bit worse. There's the bird, there's some of the late game ones. It's fine. We're not taking it over the rest. W what's your pick from this pack so far? That's a good question. I think it's the um, the researcher out of as of right now. I don't think I I don't think I want to take the Pledge Mage that early in general, but it's i mean i'm not super excited about any of these yeah i'm probably on either the researcher the pledge major the arcane subtraction I think it's better than good. guiding voice guiding voice is a little bit narrow although I, I will say some of the uh the, the decks that often feel like you're doing the most broken thing tend to be the most aggressive decks uh the, sometimes if you have a really if you have a hand that has one drop two drop three drop it often feels like you just can't lose especially against some of these go big uh eight drop decks Sometimes they just look at their hand and their hand is like eight drop, eight drop, five drop. And <laughs> you, you just killed their three drop. And now they're like, okay, I, I guess I just died of these little beaters. Yeah, I've actually found an interesting dynamic in this this format in particular because it's such a long sort of stretchy format where you expect games to go into turn eight plus. Yeah. The pressure you can apply with an early, really strong early curve is massive. And it gets to the point where like, your opponents don't have a choice whether or not they can play around your your combat tricks 
because they just know like if I block here, I'm blocking down because you're going to trade your 2-2 for my 5-5 five five or whatever. And mm. if I don't block it, I'm dead. So <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, it's a lose-lose situation for your opponent. And that's a great feeling. Plus, there's some really good combat tricks in this format. Next up, we have a card that I think I'm happy to first pick uh, over the rest of this stuff, at least. Professor of Zoomancy. Oh, yeah. Four mana, four, three. Makes a pest. Two bodies for four mana. And one of them is a pest. Love it. Perfect. Yep. Sometimes it trades down, but I don't really care. <laughs> like, the, the rate's just good enough. Yeah, the thing is, with, with Professor of Zoomancy, it's like, as soon as that hits the board, it's done its thing. So I don't really care if it eats a removal spell or trades down or whatever. Like, it's it's done its thing. Next up is Professor's Warning. This is one black instant. Put a 1-1 counter on a creature or target creature gains indestructible. This is a very flexible and efficiently costed trick, but I still often don't play it. <laughs> Agreed. Ooh, next up we've got Fractal Summoning. X for uh, Quandrix Quandrix, of course. Make a 0-0 and put X-1-1 counters on it. Every single green or blue deck wants at least one fractal summoning the sideboard. It's probably the first pick here. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like I've never wanted to first pick a lesson, even though I know the creature lessons are really good. Uh, I think it probably is still correct to take it here, but I don't know. For some reason, maybe it's that I've seen them wheel enough that I haven't bothered to to take them that highly yet. But um, I don't know. For some reason, it feels weird to take a lesson first outside of mascot yeah. exhibition. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true I, I would not advise passing mascot exhibition uh, i don't think I, too many people ever have uh i mean we still have a whole lot of pack left <laughs> there's a lot more coming but i'm pretty happy with fractal summoning out of what we've seen so far next up we have mentor's guidance that's two and a blue for a sorcery when you cast a spell copy if you control a planeswalker cleric druid shaman warlock or wizard which honestly, if you have a creature on the battlefield, it's pretty hard to not have one of these unless you exclusively have the uh, the mascots, for example, or something like that, or you're playing a bunch of demons in black. Uh, besides that, you're usually going to have like, or so, I guess, uh, black, green, blue. Uh, you're, you're usually going to have a mentor's guidance uh, trigger. And then it's a pretty good divination. Yeah. Ooh, uh, we're going to give Fractal something a run for its money. I, I, I would probably take mentor's guidance over it. I'd have to think about it a bit, but... Quandrix Apprentice is just going to, you know, dunk on both of these here. That's uh, green-blue for a 2-2 human wizard. Whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery, look at the top three cards of your library, reveal a land, and put it in your hand, rest on the bottom in order. I have drawn, like, six-plus cards off this from a single before. Uh, going Quandrix Apprentice into Field Trip is just an absurd start. It's my favorite way to start a game in this format. Pretty much no matter what's in your hand after that point, you're just casting things ahead of your opponent, and because of the way the set is built, you're not really ever running out of cards. So getting to cast your big things and more things before your opponent and guaranteeing that you're going to have the land drops, perfect. Yeah, I mean, you, you think about what we've seen in this pack already. Quandrix Apprentice and a Mentor's Guidance is just chef's kiss, so like... Oh yeah. Next up, we've got Ardent Dust Speaker. This is four in red for a 3-4. It attacks, you can put an instant or sorcery from the graveyard on the bottom of your library. If you do exile the top two cards, you can play those cards a turn. I found it to be fine. Yeah, it's a it's a serviceable five drop, but often I've found it doesn't really make the cut. It's like a big enough body that it matters, but its effect isn't always that that amazing. So yeah, just certainly just passable. Yeah, I've actually found the body to be a little bit small. I think if this were a three five, it'd be better. But I found four four to be kind of the, the magical power and toughness in this format. Uh, I mean, elementals are coming as 4-4 four, four tokens. There's a lot of 4-4 four, four blockers. Uh, I've actually found Cogwork Archivist to be a little bit better than I once thought. Because it's a 4-5 with reach, it can block almost every common creature in the format. A lot of uncommons, too. It's really tough to get through it. It even dodges some of the best removal spells. Uh, I, I, I've seen several board states stall out because an opponent has one or two Cogwork Archivist. Not saying you should put it in every deck, but 
I'm just saying that that absolutely blanks Ardent Dust Speaker, right? Yeah. Oh, that's cute. Uh, for my rare here, I've got a Shine Shadow Snarl. Not what I'm going to be taking out of this pack, but I don't know. I'll toss it straight into a commander deck. Yeah, there you go. Funnily enough, uh, I would actually take a Wither Bloom. Uh, sorry, not a, a Wither Bloom. I'd actually take a Silver Quill Campus over the Snarl every single time. Interesting. I found the Scrying to just be so much more useful than the ability to come in on tap. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a huge deal. The uh, the ability to, to scry before your, your upkeep really breaks the the pattern we've seen in this format of of those long-term board stalls and uh, can really give you an edge over your opponent. So definitely a huge function. Last but not least, uh, for those that are checking us out on YouTube, we have a gorgeous-looking shock. Is it the pick here? Actually, that was the first thing that I thought when you showed it on camera. <laughs> I was like, I think that's what we're taking. Yeah, here's the thing. Quandrix Apprentice is great. It's like, it, you know, it's a powerful card, but it does very little if you're not actually in Quandrix. Like, I guess you could splash it into a Witherbloom deck and you'll be happy with that too, but I found it's a, there's a very fine line to ride here with determining when to stake your claim on a, on like a particular college and taking the shock is just super safe here. It's going to fit literally any red deck you're going to play and is going to set you up for great Prismari stuff coming down the, down the pipeline as well as Lorehold stuff as well. So I've actually found that the ability to go face in this format is pretty strong. There's what, like seven or eight different spells that can just deal two to five damage to face so being in a hyper aggressive deck and just even having a copy of this in your deck will occasionally mean you just top deck the win which does feel great for those that uh, that haven't yet yeah you can also turn it in you can like i mean this is this is a stretch with one of the best cards for the deck but if you happen to have a rutha you can copy shock to uh turn it into a heated debate basically which is uh pretty pretty decent it's kind of funny that uh, both Shock and Lightning Bolt are in the same format. That's true. Oh, well. That's a little bit I weird. mean, also Swords, too, but now we're just starting to compare uh, yeah. just here. Cool. Well, with that, we'll move on to our Teferi Tibble. If you're new to the show and haven't heard this section before, this is where Ben and I talk about our previous week, something good, something bad, and uh, just kind of, you know, share ourselves a little bit with the, with the audience. So, Ben, why don't you kick us off with your Teferi Tibble? Sure thing. This past weekend, I got to go somewhere that I've always wanted to go to. Now... A lot of people are probably familiar with the Big Bang hypothesis. Uh, it's the idea Never of how the universe... <laughs> but more people know the Big Bang Theory as the TV show than, than of the actual scientific hypothesis. But for those that haven't heard, uh, I studied astrophysics and I'm a space guy. So turns out the actual telescope or antenna, whatever you want to call it, it's essentially the same thing. It collects light. Uh, the actual place where they recorded the evidence for the Big Bang is just 30 minutes from my apartment and I've never been there. Uh, so I realized, wait a minute, I'm uh, I'm wasting my life away by never having seen this. It looks really cool. It's a giant horn. And fun fact, uh, I, I was actually just teaching this to my class, which is kind of what inspired me to go. The original discoverers of what they call the CMB, it's called Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, uh, which if you look in every direction in space, we see it. Uh, the analogy I like to use is if you were inside an exploding firework, if you look in every direction, you would see you know, the firework moving away from you. That's kind of what we see, except on the scale of uh, the universe. And it's a little different. In fact, it's very different. The Big Bang was nothing like a firework. It has so many wrong assumptions, I can't even begin to address <laughs> them. But uh, it, it, for, for our purposes, it works. Uh, anyway, when they first discovered this radiation, they thought it was pigeon poop. So they, 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 uh, they had to scare away flocks of pigeons and like clean all the poop off the, uh, 
off the the giant receiver. And then they thought they thought it was like New York City. They thought it might be like Russians because it was like during kind of Cold War esque times. Nope. Turns out they just made one of the most scientific, uh, scientifically important discoveries in in history. They won a Nobel Prize for it, and they thought it was pigeon poop. So I got to go uh, and, and check that out. It was a lot of fun and. Uh, my girlfriend and I even stopped to get some some good sushi on the way back. A, a nice. good time overall. Absolutely. Now, uh, <laughs> uh, on for my tibble. I got a parking ticket for just the dumbest reason in the world. Uh, I got it today. So I was uh, running a little bit late this morning because I overslept a little. And I, I'm a teacher, so I had to find some parking out by my school. My usual spot was taken because I was like three minutes later than I normally am in those parking spots. Man, teachers are cutthroat when it comes to a parking spot in the morning. So I had to park kind of like near a corner. And I was like, I probably won't get a ticket for this. It's like six feet behind where I usually park. Someone else had just gotten up in front of me and like parked a little bit ahead of where I usually do. So I was like, I can park here. It's fine. Of course, I come back out and there's a ticket. And the real kicker is that it's on a street that all the other teachers have to drive fast. So another teacher <laughs> rolls down our window and goes, ha! <laughs> <laughs> You got a ticket. <laughs> wow. Like, you know what? <laughs> yeah, I did. So uh, honestly, it was a nice enough day outside today that I can't really even be too mad about it. I I, I forgot about it almost in the after. <laughs> wow. That's that's something. Sick burn. Yeah. Anyway, how about you? <laughs> yeah, so my Teferi, uh, I visited my in-laws up in Connecticut this weekend. It was it was a pretty good time. We uh Hannah and I got out to to do our first sort of spring picnic of the year, which was great. It was a lot of fun. We sat by this river that we used to hang out at a lot when we met, and so that was a lot of fun. Sweet. Uh, uh, my Tybalt, though, is that I've been making some pretty foolish mistakes when it comes to magic. The first mm. of which, I've got two two examples here. The first of which was uh, after one of my more successful drafts of the format, um, I drafted a really sweet Prismari deck that actually harkened back to the first deck that I drafted for the format, which I trophied with, and even had the same splash. I was splashing white in a Prismari deck for a rip-apart, and it was a sweet deck. Very, 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 very cool. Well, I queue up for my first match and I leave the room to go get some water while I'm doing so I get distracted talking to my roommate and I come back to a large defeat screen sitting on my, no. on my monitor <sighs> so that caught basically starting out with with a with a loss right off the bat in a in a in a league is not the most fun thing to do definitely not the second of these two foolish I foolish mistakes was that I uh, a lot of times I like to draft and then I'll like you know while I'm thinking about the build, on some some decks that are a little bit more difficult to put together, I'll think about the build overnight. So I'll like draft the deck, but then I'll walk away from the game and I'll just think about it and I'll yeah. come back and build the deck and then then I'll start playing. However, if you don't actually like click the uh, the the like OK button or whatever after you've drafted your deck and you just close out the game, when you come back to the game, it will have taken every card you've drafted and put it into your main deck instead of keeping the stuff that was in the sideboard in the sideboard. I see where this is going. And I forgot about that. So I just queued right up and I joined the game and I see this was a this was a Witherbloom deck that I drafted and I see an opening hand including a forest, a swamp and two stonebinders familiars and I was like <laughs> um uh-oh <laughs> I think something went wrong here and I didn't even bother trying to play the match out I just I just conceded on the spot i was like you know what i'll give this opponent their their try i'm not going to waste the time because i know i'm not going to win this is like a 70 card deck or whatever <laughs> so they, they must have looked at your deck and thought you're up to some nonsense maybe i don't even know but i was so frustrated it was just such a simple mistake and i remember this morning thinking about that and thinking like hey 
when you go to run that deck back, don't forget to actually build it because you'll have that problem. And then I forgot. So two well, awesome decks that I started off with a with a loss. Basically, I'm still in the middle of the league on that Witherbloom deck though, and doing decently. So we'll see how the rest of that goes. I'll tell you what. Don't think of it as making small mistakes. Think of it as just playing magic on very hard mode. <laughs> You're just saying, I can afford the extra loss per league. Opponents, you could just have it. In a way, you're giving away a lot of like kindness equity by doing this. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think this is a win-win here. Sure. I'll be sure to remember that when I'm looking at my 50% win rate on 17 lands. <laughs> All right. You'll have to nix a few of those losses. <laughs> you can don't count. How about our, our listener question for the week? Yeah, so... Our listener question this week is from Rob Dies at the End, one of our longtime Discord members. Rob asks, should you more aggressively mulligan a two-lander in a slow format? Here's an example of a two-land hand where I had two two-drops that I decided to keep and then wish I hadn't. Uh, it was a mid-rangey Lorehold deck with plenty of removal and Quintorius. And the hand uh, has... I got it up. Yeah, Reconstruct History, Blood Age General, Fuming Effigy, Pillar Drop Rescuer, Rip Apart, Plains mountain yeah so the two two drops in question here are rip apart and blood age general one's a pretty solid removal spell one's a replaceable two drop but a two drop nonetheless yeah this is an interesting question i think especially with like the land smoother on on arena this gets kind of uh kind of difficult as well to think about typically i think i would have kept a hand like this where you have an actual two drop to play you know by turn three you hope to have drawn your third land the problem is this hand in particular doesn't have a thing anything to do on three, so you'll need to have drawn a three drop and a land to actually do something on turn three. And maybe the second two drop, uh, but then again, you might be pointing like the rip apart at like a, at an early creature. This one's a little strange because it has reconstruct history. I haven't been super impressed with this card. Uh, I think I need to see a very particular lore hold build uh, for this to be good. So, for example, you could cast rip apart here. Uh, and then maybe trade off. See, e even with that, Reconstruct History is kind of a dead card here. You can get back Rip Apart, but then that's it's like a six mana Rip Apart over over two turns. Um, I probably would have kept this still. I, I think it's Agreed. fine. I I'll keep pretty much any opening hand in Limited that has Mountain Plains and, and a two drop uh, and a removal spell. But it's good to consider that this deck probably does need just to draw its third or fourth lands. I guess we need to see a little bit more information about this deck too. For example, Reconstruct History right now is kind of a dead card. So this is almost like starting with six cards in your hand to begin with. That card requires you to make it to the late game. Uh, well, these other ones, and same with Pillar Drop Rescuer, which also can get things back. I think I would keep this, but hmm, it's a little bit rough. Yeah, I think, so to kind of boil the question down, right, the question is, in general, should you more aggressively mulligan a two-lander in a slower format? I don't know that the format matters. I think your deck is what matters in this situation, because when you're when you're talking about mulligan considerations, you really, in, in limited anyway, assuming game one, right? So a couple of assumptions out of the way. We're talking about limited, we're talking about game one. You don't know what your opponent's playing. So you can't really take the entire format into consideration. You can't really take your opponent's game plan into consideration. What you really should be doing is looking at your hand and how it plays to your game plan. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in, in, in a minute. But that said, if, you're, if you know that you're a slower mid-rangey Lorehold deck with a lot of removal and Quintorius, which is a, a mid-range card that is very, very good in those decks, well... I think the question is, like, how far is your hand going to get you to enacting that game plan? And in this case, if you don't draw a third land, you're just not really playing the game. 
That said, it's a slower format, so can you afford to, to wait a couple turns to draw the third land? Maybe. Um, and, and so that's kind of where I lean, like, with Ben, where I'm saying I probably would have kept this. You have a two-drop to play, so it's not like you have an empty board on turn two or three, so you're not getting overly pressured by your opponent. You have a removal spell you can cast. So that should stem the bleeding. But, yeah, I, I think it's it's certainly something to consider here, and, and I wouldn't have blamed you for not not keeping this but i do think keeping it was correct i also think in a slower format that extra card you're losing with the mulligan matters slightly more for example in a hyper aggressive format take uh m21 which will forever be my go-to as the hyper aggressive format if you don't hit your third land drop with this kind of hand uh, say you have like an equivalent deck i think you just lose right you just get run yeah. over by by your opponent's game plans their feats of resistance and uh, anointed choristers just overwhelm you quickly Whereas in a slower format, you actually do occasionally have the time to draw that third land before your opponent has really done much. There's some people whose car, or whose curve starts uh, with um, Biomathematician. That's not too strange. I've seen plenty of decks like this that can win games and, and do pretty well. Now, especially because opponents sometimes don't affect the board until turn three or sometimes even turn four. I think it's actually a bit of the opposite. I, I would mulligan less aggressively. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I follow the uh, LSV rule of uh, just don't mulligan. <laughs> it, it, if it's a, unless it's like literally a one lander, uh, I and or, or like you have two planes and every single other card in your hand is like double red. Often, just don't mulligan. Uh, in in limited these days, things tend to work out. You tend to have enough time. The cards tend to have high enough impact. Like, look, even the Blood Age General, not the best card in the world. It's a two mana two two can trade with a lot of the two or three jobs your opponent could send at you early. Now, you might want to affect how you play uh, this handout. I think you actually might be a little bit more incentivized to trade off that Blood Age General than you might usually be. If your opponent plays something ridiculous, I'm not even sure what it could be, but something that could start threatening your life total quickly, maybe offer that trade or, or try to take that trade. Because first of all, you can get it back, uh, right? Uh, second of all, you have removal. Third of all, this deck really does, or th this hand at least, really does need to hit its fourth and fifth land drops in order to carry out its game plan. Now, we don't know what the rest of the deck looked like, uh, whether there were certain other cards in there. For example, they could have had the spirit that goes against planes. I think that'd be a fantastic draw here uh, in the first several turns. But overall, I would keep this, keep most hands that have a mana of each color, especially if you're playing a slightly more aggressive build, which this does kind of look to be aggressive to mid-rangey. Uh, but then again, Rob, that's the end, does say that I uh, wish they hadn't, so... Guess we know how that one turned out. Sometimes that, that's something to recognize. Some percent of the time, you just won't hit the land, and that doesn't necessarily mean it was a bad keep. True. Sometimes, just statistically, you get you get RNG'd. Sometimes uh, the math just was, doesn't work out in your favor. Sometimes there's just two lands in your top 14 cards. It happens sometimes, uh, even if you're playing 17 lands. That's just the nature of magic. But with that, we're moving on to our main topic here, and this week we're talking about playing with a plan. And this was originally intended to be. A back to basics episode. We have been wanting to cover this topic for quite some time. Strixhaven is basically, I, I really can't think of a better format to talk about this within the context of, but this is intended to be sort of a format ag agnostic episode. Uh, so the ideas we're going to cover today are, are relevant in any format and pretty much any card game as well. But we really do think the Strixhaven is a pretty perfect example of what we're talking about. Um, so that that's given us the excuse to get this episode to you finally. Uh, that said, it's kind of time we came up with our own limited theory, isn't it? You know, you, you've got all these different theories from, from different players and different uh, podcasts and such. It's time we came up with our own. And Ben's done quite a bit of brainstorming here to kind of nurse a, a theory of our own together. And uh, I think I think this one is really going to resonate with, with the listeners here. So, Ben, 
walk us through your your new theory on playing with a plan. You got it. So I have dubbed my theory vector theory. Now, you may be curious about this. You probably haven't heard of it before, and that's because no one's heard of it before. I literally made it up. So I have found a way to combine my knowledge of physics and my knowledge of magic in what could be considered the nerdiest thing I've ever said in a sentence. Uh, now, we're kind of entering this new age of limited. And unless you've been living under like a hedron for the last year or so, uh, you should know that by now, data is the way to go. If you want to improve, uh, we have our, our friends at 17 Lands and people starting to adopt this and, and fantastic analyses coming out, people uh, scraping data and doing all sorts of stuff. This is a way to get ahead now. Uh, there, there were some discussions on Twitter this week. Uh, one that was coming up was gather the specimens versus uh, cram session. And people were saying, let's just, let, let's stop arguing about which is the better card and let's look at the data. So it, it's time to start switching into that kind of mindset. And to be able to work within that mindset, we can no longer just say a card is good. That's not going to cut it anymore. Uh, that is vague language, I would say. We need to be able to say why a card is good with just as much clarity and efficiently as saying a card is good. Um, now, my background is astrophysics and physics education. And like I said, I think I've been able to combine my interests in a way that, that helps us all improve at, at our favorite format here. Let's talk about vectors. So in physics, there's physical quantities, which are just amounts of stuff. Uh, pretty much anything you can think of that's measured numerically has a physical quantity associated with it. So let's say you wake up in the morning, you pour water into your teapot. That's a physical quantity. Uh, the amount of flour you add to your pancakes, physical quantity. The temperature uh, at which your, your stovetop is, physical quantity. The thickness of the bacon that uh, you're eating for breakfast. Personally, I actually cook my bacon in the oven uh, because it is superior to pan frying, fun fact. Uh, the thickness at which you prefer your bacon, that's a physical quantity. All of these things are delicious physical quantities. Uh, and some of these are called vector quantities, which means they have both amount and direction. Whereas some of these are known as scalar quantities, meaning they just have amount. So let's talk about some examples of this. Mass, uh, temperature, length, volume, these are scalars. They're just numbers, right? Um, like five kilograms of this. This thing is three feet long. Uh, I have two gallons of this. Um, you don't say two gallons north. That makes no sense. It's just two gallons. It's an amount. Whereas a vector has both an amount and a direction associated with it. So displacement, uh, velocity, acceleration, force, momentum, a lot of these physics-y terms, these are what are known as vectors. So for example, a force, I would say I exert a force of five newtons on an object in the nor in north uh, or, or in a certain direction, to the right, uh, in the negative direction, in some direction. This is a physical quantity that has an amount and a direction. And you can kind of loosely visualize this by an arrow. Uh, so an arrow that is pointing in a direction, uh, that direction represents, of course, the direction of the vector. And the length of the arrow represents that vector's strength. So a larger force exerted on an object would result in a uh, larger arrow. All right, there's my physics lesson for today. H how do you feel about that? Yeah, great. But this is a magic podcast. So where are you going with this? Okay, okay, okay. So in physics, vectors are useful because they have strength and direction. Now, the more I thought about this, the more I realized that draft decks have really similar properties. And cards have really similar properties. And I felt for a while that sometimes there's an aspect missing to our discussion of limited decks and cards in a limited scenario. Sometimes we 
forget to talk about an axis, uh, uh, one of these, these axes that I'm discussing now. So let's talk about how these axes work in Magic. I interpret the direction of a Magic deck or card to be the archetype of, of that deck or card. I'm just going to say deck, uh, but guys, we could interpret this through a single card as well. So an archetype would be equivalent to the direction of a vector. Um, Red-white aggro, blue-green ramp, black-red sacrifice, whatever. And then the strength of a deck, or uh, I guess the strength of a vector, would be how strong the deck is. So compared to all the other decks in that archetype, how reliable is it at enacting its game plan? How high are the quality of cards in that deck? Uh, in other words, for a given deck, what direction does it point and how strong is that arrow? So uh, I've kind of built this analogy here that a deck can have a direction, you know, its plan, and a length, which is how good it is at enacting that plan. So how does this help us as players? Um, I think it can help us sort out outliers really well, just as, as kind of like a, an extra little bonus thing. Consider M21 again. Uh, after only a few days of the format, it was pretty well known that late game archetypes were just pretty much unplayable. Uh, it, it helped us narrow down some of the best archetypes and color pairs. Uh, so if we look at this in, in terms of this vector theory, which decks and color pairs have the highest win rate? So I think that when you know the strength and direction of your deck, you can use this to confirm and carry out your deck's plan more effectively and also help compare it to other decks. So from now on, whenever I'm talking about the strength of a particular deck in a given format, I want to try to talk about its direction, as in its plan, and its strength, as in the length of its arrow. So in our new era of limited analysis, uh, maybe this theory can even be mathematically translated into visuals someday. Uh, maybe our friends over at 17 Lands could somehow visualize this. Um, although I suppose it'd be kind of hard to do for decks. You'd have to somehow come up with a 3D space that would, or the direction would be associated <laughs> with it. I'll leave that to the big brains over there. Uh, they, they can have fun with that one. But like I said, uh, my, my big theory here, decks can have a direction and a strength in that given direction. And these two axes, I think, are going to unlock a whole bunch of uh, really cool ways to analyze decks and compare decks and talk about decks in, in ways that we couldn't before. And all this, like I mentioned, applies to individual cards as well. Let's think about how we can apply this in, in Strixhaven Limited. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so just to kind of to flesh that out even further, when you're talking about deck direction, right, the, the plan of the deck... Yeah. Or, or the archetype, I suppose, of, of a particular deck. And we're talking about comparing uh, both the direction and the strength of a deck. You're kind of talking about doing that within the same ecosystem of that archetype, right? Like, it, mm -hmm. it's it's difficult to compare the, the strength of a deck in archetype A with the strength of a deck in archetype B in a way that is, like, con conflicting with the those two decks because you're it's like the apples to oranges kind of debate like you're not really comparing yeah. the same things mm -hmm. there's a few metrics by which we can compare them i think overall win rate of uh certain color pairs but to be more specific certain archetypes in those color pairs uh, could be one metric by which we could gather the strength in order to compare those effectively so for example if i exert a force of 10 newtons north and a force of 20 newtons south i can say that the south that the southern force is stronger mm -hmm. um so similarly, you could have uh, a format where blue-red is the uh, strongest deck, for example. Uh, but you could have an individual red-green deck who's uh, that particular deck because of, say, the card quality included in that deck or other factors. It happens to have a longer overall vector. I, I think this is probably best useful to compare uh, 
decks within the same archetype. I think that's where, where mm -hmm. this can be pretty strong. So for example, uh, red white in Strixhaven can have a super aggressive build or kind of like a late game mid rangey build. And you'd have to differentiate between those two. You couldn't compare uh, those vectors would go in different directions, despite being mm -hmm. the same color pair. I, I do actually want to talk about some specific examples of, of stuff in Strixhaven with this. So as it turns out, uh, conveniently enough, the plane that's centered about learning and that kind of thing, uh, we get to do a little bit of learning ourselves here. We get to kind of hone our skills with a something that we've learned. Uh, oh, uh, so it's fitting. I had to jump into, into teacher mode for a little bit on Strixhaven, didn't I? Um, we can consider this newfound ability to categorize and compare decks. Let's start with what's widely considered to be one of the strongest decks in the format, which is Quandrix Ramp, if not the strongest deck in the format. The direction of this color pair is very clear. The, the direction of this archetype, the direction our vector is going to point is pretty obvious. Get lands in the battlefield, draw cards, go over the top, resolve big threats. Hit people with beaters and fractals and, and whatever else uh, once you have the board solidly stabilized. So now we have to consider what the strength of this deck is. Now, the length of this strength arrow is definitely affected by individual cards. A deck with multiple on-color bomb rares is going to just be stronger and better at winning games overall. However, we can still try to maximize the strength of our deck within the draft and within gameplay. We can try to get that arrow to be as long as we can in the direction that we want, uh, like I said, both in drafting and from our choices mid-gameplay. So in drafting, consider the cards that your deck needs to enact its game plan. And then think about what cards you need to pick from your draft to get your vector as long as you can in the direction that you want it. So for example, Quandrix is always ramp card draw big threats. Say it's pack three, you already have two Quandrix apprentices, which are the ones that I opened, the ones that, that grab lands on Magecraft. Uh, you have a bookworm, you're light on ramp spells. So say you get past a pack with a field trip, the three drop uh, ramp spell with learn, and also a body of research, the uh, on-color mythic that makes like a six mana 30-30 or whatever. There's a lot of players out there that would slam the mythic. And honestly, sometimes I'd be one of them. It depends on how I'm feeling. But if we consider this vector theory, consider which component your deck needs to be functional. Uh, exactly. Another late game top end card, which, you know, it, that does lengthen your arrow by a good amount. That is a high quality card. However, a crucial ramp spell with you know bonus apprentice synergy and the fact that it learns that might actually increase your arrow in the direction that you want by more than taking the on color mythic yeah this deck helps your plan absolutely and that's that's something that i think we need to keep in mind when it comes to uh really any archetype right the the idea here is you're thinking through during the draft process you're thinking through what what does my plan want to do what does the deck's plan want to do which cards need to to do i do i need to pick up in order to create that plan or bring that plan to its fruition and as you're constantly picking cards you're updating that in your head okay i have a big ramp spell uh sorry i have a big a big beater i've got a bookworm that part mm. of the plan is covered i have cards yeah. that cover that part how do i get to the bookworm well i need ramp spells i don't have those yet sure there's a big flashy mythic but i haven't seen any field trips come my way yet and i'm not likely to see this one wheel you gotta scoop it up mm. yeah uh you have a solid direction you are locked into the direction of your vector at this point. You now need to get the cards that make that arrow as long as possible that strengthen your deck in the right way. Taking the body research does make your deck a stronger, better deck. And not gonna lie, you could take that and you'll certainly win games with it. But to make a better, more consistent deck overall, a more functioning deck that functions within its own plan and within its direction, I would take field trip there every single time. 
Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, that's something we, we talk a lot about trying to stay open for as long as possible. And I think the whole community does talk about that pretty regularly. It's a it's a fairly, um, I would say, introductory level up for newer players to learn to mm-hmm. stay as, stay open as long as possible. And you can kind of think of that as like your arrow is spinning, right? Yeah, You're, yeah. You haven't great. quite you haven't quite found where the arrow is landing and your arrow spinning and you don't know what direction it's going in and as you keep adding cards to it that spin starts to slow and slow until finally the arrow stops on a particular point and now you have to you have to figure out the strength and extend the arrow as long as as long as you possibly can within the bounds of the format that you're working with I like where this theory is going we got some good analogies <laughs> building already although i guess technically it would be within a like a rotating 3d space so maybe sure more like, yeah uh, <laughs> uh, but but i get what you're saying um I think this is a great analogy for why taking colorless uh, bombs, Wandering Archaic is one of my first uh, favorite first picks. Of course, Mascot Exhibition is also great because this doesn't even start the arrow spinning yet. You get to go right to your second pick without even worrying about what direction you might be going because that, that's as if it increases the direction or increases the length of your arrow in every direction by like a good chunk um, because you're, every single deck you could possibly be in just got that much better just by taking a, a colorless card or... You could also do this by taking a strong single-colored card. For example, Shock. Uh, that kind of increases your red deck's direction by a pretty good amount. That's another reason the lessons are so powerful, right? Because they they enable these features and don't actually take away from your real picks. Now, this is kind of what I was getting at earlier. I think in my in my excitement to explain this theory, I might have kind of jumbled through some, some topics with this. Uh, this is something that we plan on coming back to quite a bit. Uh, don't worry, this isn't where we're going to stop with this. I might even type this up as an article. Now... I think with our discussion of quote unquote good cards, I mentioned sometimes we lose one of these axes, uh, direction and strength. Sure, Body of Research is a good card. There are some blue-green decks that just don't want it. Um, for example, I have yet to see one, but I could enable, a, I could picture a deck in this format that's just like blue-green beatdown or something like that. Uh, I'm sure it, it could exist out there somewhere. Um, perhaps let's look at a, at a, at a slightly different uh, example. Say we're playing blue-red, uh, which could potentially have a, a hyper-aggressive, evasive deck, maybe with a bunch of uh, Prismari Apprentices and maybe even some Pledge Mages in there too. You could have this kind of tempo deck with some bounce spells and some interaction. This, this deck might not want Magma Opus. It might not plan to win the game on turn 10. It, it, its plan might be to win the game on turn 5, 6, 7. It might be like a 15 land deck uh, if it has enough. Maybe it has some opts in there too. And it's, it's almost playing like a straight up blue-red tempo. So imagine someone sees that you maybe took Magma Opus and then didn't end up playing it in the deck. They might say, what are you doing? You're out of your mind. Magma Opus is a busted. It's a great card. They're considering the length of that card's vector in a very specific deck. In the deck that wants to cast, in the blue-red late game, uh, Spectacle Mage, cheat out bigger spells deck. They're not considering the length of that uh, arrow, what it would do to increase the strength of your blue-red tempo-y beatdown Because it wouldn't increase it as much as maybe, I don't know, like an enthusiastic study or something. Like, like a, a good pump spell or a good removal spell. It might be better to just have one of those in there that maybe that's what you had to cut for it. So I think this is what I meant by, uh, you have to resolve both axes when you're talking about this. Uh, from this point onward, I, I'm going to strive, and I challenge you all to do the same, of considering both the strength and direction of cards and I guess overall archetypes in particular formats uh, so the decks in the formats and then the cards in those particular decks. Wow, this is a versatile theory. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good stuff. So we talked about Quandrix. 
let's talk about the other side of the coin. Quandrix is kind of like, a, you know, the slow, rampy, throw your beaters down. <coughs> Excuse me, throw your beaters down and, and hope to just win in the late game. The flip side of that coin at this point in this format seems to be Silverquill, right? It's virtually the opposite of Quandrix. It loves being uh, aggressive, uh, loves to, tr- you know, try to go over the top or beat the decks that go over the top by going over the top more literally using flyers uh, and stop stop like those late game shenanigans with uh you know some some h- higher powered lower cost cards so the best archetype silver quill has to offer seems to be this aggressive play one drop play a two drop play some flyers uh, go get some some inklings uh and, and some shield mages particularly as a top end uh, that that's so much different than some of these other decks. Some of these decks are jamming like seven, eight drops as their win cons. I think the highest you want to go with Silver Quill is like five. Um, now this has this aggressive strategy has a much better overall vector than even I think the best possible other Silver Quill build. You need a very very particular mid range or, or late game uh, build of this. Maybe something like Blot Out the Sky or some other uh, very very specific cards probably rares or, or multiple uncommons of a certain type besides that the commons of this seem to best lend it to aggression especially because once people start resolving those big reach creatures silver quill really struggles yeah and i think it's so, worth it's worth pointing up there pointing out there too we we're talking about uh you know looking at you know the, the the big flashy mythics in your color compared to you know something that feels more mediocre in in a common we also you know you mentioned magma opus not necessarily fitting your prismari deck depending on the 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 direction of the deck that's not to say that these cards are bad and it's certainly not to say that as ben mentioned at the beginning like not only do decks have a direction and a strength but individual cards also have a direction and a strength and kind of like you were talking about with like opposite forces right like the two can kind of cancel or cause each other to grow uh depending on whether their directions are facing the same way and they're you know they're they're equally strong for that that direction so take a lot of this with with some amount of salt right you're you don't want to just say right off the bat like oh blot of the sky blot out the sky doesn't belong in my silver quill deck because silver quill wants to go fast nine times out of ten that you know silver quill does want to go fast but blot out the sky might just be far more powerful than anything else that deck has to offer and so it's even though it might be in a slightly different direction it might be strong enough that it doesn't matter yeah uh, a great example of this is board wipes in aggressive white decks like a good number of limited white aggressive decks would still play a wrath of god because having one of those in your opening hand is just so great. <laughs> you, you watch as your opponent just plays out their creatures, and then you're kind of biding your time. You blow up their board, you rebuild quickly, and then you win from there. Uh, it's just the raw power. Sometimes does add to your deck's direction with the amount of strength that you'd expect. But some of these cards are just a little more niche than that. Now, I wanted to mention something about Silver Quill gameplay-wise that I found also kind of fits the strategy. I think it's good to be acutely aware of the direction of your deck and what your deck needs to be able to do to win the game. This is back to playing with a plan, uh, as well as as uh, you know drafting with a plan, as, as we've kind of been more talking about. I found myself making some attacks in Silver Quill that might be ill-advised in other formats. Sometimes I will ram a flyer into a reach creature just to get in for like six to ten extra damage in a, in a given turn because i know the only way my deck is going to win that game is top decking a pump spell or top decking the single removal spell that i need or top decking my sign in blood to take them out from two life or, or something like that now like i said this isn't the kind of gameplay i would always make and a lot of decks wouldn't do this but if you know the direction that your deck is in Maybe you know for a fact that your deck is never beating 
your opponents resolved, uh, I don't know, Master Symmetrist. For example, Silver Quill really struggles with Master Symmetrist, I've found, just because uh, it, it blanks Inklings just so well. Same thing with uh, sometimes the uh, uh, Pillar Drop something. Warden. It, it's Pillar Drop Warden also makes, makes Inklings look kind of silly. So sometimes you have to just have faith in the way you built your deck. This is why it's so important to uh, draft with the plan and then play with the same plan you drafted with. If you took uh, a defend the campus, uh, sometimes you need to hope to top deck that in order to, to give your team the boost that needs to go over the top or maybe blow up that pesky master symmetrist and, and be able to swing in for lethal before your opponent gets to stabilize. So understand the plan of your deck. I'm not saying... Uh, smack all your creatures into your opponent and then say, oh, Ben said to do it and now I lost. I'm saying be very aware of how exactly your deck wins based on the cards in your deck. I recommend for those that don't do this, have your access to your deck while you're playing. I have a, a plugin, Untapped GG, uh, I recommend it, that shows me my deck at any given time. You can also, of course, use 17 Lance if you want to pull up the website. Uh, I happen to have the overlay for, for Untapped, that's why I thought of it. Or just take a screenshot of your deck and have access to it. Think about what you could draw and how that would affect the board that you're currently in. So I actually had this exact scenario happen. I ended up ramming a bunch of uh, a bunch of my little dorky silver quill stuff into a few of my opponents big baddies and uh i lost like a creature or two but i traded it for the life that i needed which then eventually let me win the game because i did draw the exact removal spell that i needed. that was the only way my deck was going to win it's a pretty bad deck i think silver quills vectors are pretty small <laughs> compared to some of the uh some of the better decks in this format but if you know the direction that you're going and you know exactly how long your arrow is, you can play to your outs pretty effectively. Yeah, I've had this come up in my own gameplay where, you know, you draft the deck with a particular plan in mind, and then once you start to play, you're thinking more about the cards that you've seen and less about the cards you haven't seen that you know are coming. And so, like, I'll, I'll play out, you know, I, I had a I had a, a play, I can't remember the exact cards that were involved, but essentially I blocked incorrectly or I blocked in a spot that I was like, this is kind of throwing my creature away, but it's fine. Um, maybe I'm trading down or something. And... As soon as I, I went through with the attack, I was like, wait a second, if I just top deck X, I could have pumped that and then it was, it, you know, it may, might have been a Quandrix Pledge Mage and like if I just top deck a spell, my Pledge Mage is now not trading with this creature, it's actually surviving yeah. through it. And so I can eat the extra three damage, but I, I just didn't because I wanted my Pledge Mage, I, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, not take the damage, whereas I could have kept my Pledge Mage around and then sure enough, you top deck the spell and you're just like, oh, well, that was silly. Yeah, I wish I'd played the plan a little more. Yeah. Yeah. So let's chat about some of the other decks briefly. The other colleges sometimes have similar dynamics. Uh, Witherbloom has a few different directions it can go in. It has the life gain direction, which I found the vector of the life gain direction to scale incredibly quickly with each of the uncommon synergy pieces that you get. Um, if you cast Fortifying Drought with Dina on the battlefield and like a few pests, it is a nightmare combat for your opponent. You, you gain a bunch of life and... Uh, Sometimes I've actually found it to be a fun little little combo with um is it like reflecting golem or, or like mm -hmm. plate golem reflecting or something golem, yeah. reflective golem uh, that's a very fun card with pump spells which I found to be pretty strong in this format um, again uh, this this specific direction I found with each of those life gain pieces you get it rewards you for leaning in mm -hmm. and then of course there's the more traditional I think like there's like sa sacrifice and black green kind of like just hard mid range which I found to be a pretty solid deck too. That's kind of the other direction. Now, Prismari has the big spells direction, of course. Uh, that one's hard to miss. It also has this lower-to-the-ground tempo build. Lorehold has the kind of mid-range, late-game, Quintorious nonsense, 
which I found to be a uh, worse vector overall than going hall monitor, two drop, three drop, pump spell, kill you. Uh, I, I, that's my preferred way to to uh, play lore hold. Contorius, that that nonsense is fine, but like I don't know, just something about playing a hall monitor turn one. It's like ooh, they're they're in for a beating this game. <laughs> now I'm actually now going to turn it over to the class, if you will. Um, one thing I know from from being a teacher is that people don't remember what you tell them; they remember what they do themselves. So I would like to challenge all of you to. Show us outliers. Show us decks with weird vectors that we didn't mention on here. Um, I'd like to hear what you think of, of vector theory overall. If this is something you'd like to hear more about, if this is something you'd be interested in me typing up a little more detailed article about, and then maybe post some decks that you believe to be prime examples of strong vectors in a given direction. Uh, like I said, the way that this is going to kind of take off or, or, or be useful to people is if you actually use it and find it useful and do things with it. So just start thinking about it. Keep it in the back of your head and consider this while drafting. Think about how this will influence your plan. Think about how individual cards uh, have a direction and a strength in that given direction. And then think about how the decks overall seem to play into this as well. And by using that, I have a feeling this could be a pretty useful way of talking about cards and the decks that the cards go in. Well, that does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening and making your way through it. We really hope you enjoy Vector Theory and get to, uh, you know, maybe adjust the way you draft based on some of the things we talked about today. As Ben said, definitely let us know what you're thinking and, uh, and, and, and examples of outliers or any of the decks that you're putting together after having, you know, adopted this sort of thought process through your draft. Uh, we definitely want to see those. And the best place to send those to us is in the Discord. Drop them in our Strixhaven uh, limited format channel. And you can check out the Discord via the link that's in our episode description as well as on our Twitter page. If you want to support the show directly, you can do so via Patreon. And uh, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod. If you're not interested in supporting directly financially, that's totally okay. We, we understand. It's not for everybody. That said, if you do want to support the show and you aren't interested in that avenue, you can help us out by spreading the show around. We really would love to get more ears on the show. And um, even writing a review on your podcasting platform of choice would be a great help to us as well as as it gets uh, folks to to see and get exposed to the show more frequently. So definitely check that out if you're interested in that sort of thing. If you want to reach out to us outside of the Discord, you can do so on Twitter. You can find me at Galfordian or Ben at Betafish1. And you can find the podcast directly at DraftChaffPod. Talk to you next week. Later. I had a realization partway through the episode. Uh, the addition of video, that means people will see us. It does. At all times. Yes. So I've gotten kind of used to being on video, uh, given okay. that I was teaching a lot of virtual students for a while, a bunch even from uh, the same webcam. But this is something that I, I haven't had to consider a while since I've been back in person. And uh, it, it relates to the, the, uh, the, the quandary of appearance on, on video camera. You have to remember to wear pants. But do you, though? Well, here's the thing. I'm not wearing pants right now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, do with that what you <laughs> Okay. I feel like you could have just gone this entire episode without mentioning that to anybody, including myself. And nobody to. would have noticed. I, I had to Given say it. I can't live with that kind of burden. Given that your video is from like the collarbone up, I think it would have been okay. Yeah, but but look, I have to be honest. And the thing is, if I had stood up, it would have become very obvious very quickly. <laughs> so 
It's something that I, I, I recommend to both of us that we keep in mind from this point on. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Also, anybody who made it this far and uh, is is listening to this admittedly awkward sign-off, uh, do let us know about the video stuff, what we can do to improve it. And, uh, you know, it, yeah, we're kind of new to that aspect of the show. So definitely give us suggestions. There.